Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 23rd of November, 2020. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking to Christine Figner, who is a sea turtle biologist based in Costa Rica. She was named as one of the next generation leaders by Time magazine and has been involved in documentary filming work for both Nat Geo and the BBC. Currently, she sits as a director of education for the Footprint Foundation. And we're going to be talking about some of her research, including the work that she undertook uh, when she was studying for her PhD, which looked at trophic and movement ecology of sea turtles. Uh, It's a really intriguing show. There's some technical details in here, which hopefully we do a good job of explaining exactly uh, what they mean and and how it works. Uh, I learned so much speaking to Christine. So we're going to jump straight in. But don't forget, if you like the kind of conversations that we have on this podcast, then it's probably worth checking out my monthly column, which you can read on modernhuntsman.com. Look for the Into the Anthropocene column with my name on it, Byron Pace. And every month I bring a selection of really interesting science stories from around the world. And if you can't remember that, the link is also in the show notes. And lastly, if you would like to support this show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace and there's a whole variety of tiers on there and you can help make these shows possible. Thank you very much. I hope that you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Christine Figner. Christine, welcome to the show. It's really great to be speaking to you from the other side of the world. I know that you've had some terrible weather uh, where you are the last couple of weeks, and we had to delay this a little bit just to, to make sure we had stable internet connection. How, how is everything where you are? What's the kind of state of play in the country? Yeah, we are pretty much back to normal right now. So it's pretty sunny outside, so I'm sitting here sweating. Um, but yeah, I know, because I asked you to turn your fan off. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. I mean, if I don't respond at one point, it's probably because I had a heat stroke, but other than that. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll try and get this done before you have a heat stroke. Um, Just by way of intro, but this is absolutely not going to be the main thing that we we focus this uh, conservation on, conversation on. Uh, So I I think a lot of people might know who you are, even if they don't quite realize they know who you are. Because you uh, put out a video a couple of years ago now, I think it was, of a plastic straw being pulled out of the nose of a, a turtle. Um, that was that was you that, that was filming it. Just explain very briefly how that came about and what the kind of fallout for that was, because it was a fairly successful catalyst in this campaign to start removing some elements of plastic from the ocean. Yeah, so it was five years ago, actually, at this point. And um, it was during the yeah the research of my PhD uh, project. So we were capturing turtles, and we just found this one specific male that had something funny encrusted in its in its nose. And I had a colleague visiting that day on board and on the boat that we used, and he was interested in the critters that live on turtles, the actobionts, and he was about to remove that thing. And since I had been done with my part of the data collection already, I just decided to film the whole thing. And so a lot of people are actually very familiar with my voice that have watched that movie or this film clip. After that came out, there was, um, I mean, a number of big companies around the world stopped using plastic straws. Am I correct? Yeah. So, well, I don't want to like claim that, you know, we started it all because there have been really hundreds of people that already have been working on the issue of single-use plastics, but it had been for sure 
a great catalyst for just like a bigger wave of change. And so there is like Disney, Alaska Airlines, Starbucks um, that really now are phasing out single-use plastic straws. And there's so many more governments in the world that also have been starting at least to think about what kind of single-use plastic they could phase out in future. So, I mean, that's a pretty awesome, you know, result of that video. Yeah. Uh, two questions just come off the back of this before I get it, dig into the sort of main thing that I wanted to speak to you about um, for this episode. Is, do you, and this is maybe a slightly controversial statement, but I, I've heard people talk about it before. Do you think that um, this really quite successful drive um, to raise awareness of the use of all plastics in our lifestyle has um, kind of overshadowed or removed possibly a more important focus, which is on this bigger picture of climate change? You know what? I don't think it has removed it because what people tend to forget is that these two issues actually go hand in hand because plastics are made from fossil fuels, right? And fossil fuels or the producers of fossil fuels are actually pretty much the dinosaurs. They're about to go extinct and they're looking for ways of how they can still use fossil fuels in future and they're trying to ramp up the production of plastics. So it is actually really sad. And I think if people would look at it, you know, from a very comprehensive way, rather than just from the plastic straw perspective, which I get sometimes really annoyed by, um, then they would actually see it's not, you know, it's not a disconnected issue. I, climate change and and plastics it's actually very much connected interconnected yeah okay we're gonna leave plastics to one side for the moment and uh, i want to move on to something which you just glanced over uh when you were describing the actual video which was that you said that there are things that live on turtles explain that to me because there'll be i i did know this through actually conversations with a couple of different friends of mine and one who's just written a very interesting article on turtles uh and he was telling me all about this but some people won't maybe appreciate that they're almost like a little mini ecosystem in themselves oh yeah i mean turtles are almost like floating islands for certain critters right so if you have to think about your tiny tiny organism living in the vast ocean and you might not be as mobile as for example a sea turtle you have to find ways of how to distribute and to uh, procreate as well and so you are looking for bigger animals that you can kind of latch onto and a lot of times it doesn't cause any harm to the actual host um, sometimes it does, sometimes it's it's a parasitic interaction, but a lot of times it's just kind of a commensalism. So, you know, they're just sitting on the turtles and kind of, you know, filter feed on the way where the turtle is going as well. But what is super interesting is that actually, um, depending of where the turtle is traveling, because turtles are pretty far traveling, and um, depending on the species, we actually have, you know, thousands of kilometers that are uh, traveled between feeding grounds and nesting grounds. And you can actually look at those critters that live on the turtles and see where they might have originated from. Um, because there are certain species that are only, you know, found in certain areas. Um, and if you look at those what we call bionicles, it's a little crustacean seripedia that live on turtles quite often. And they form little little shells, if you want so. And when you look at those shells, you can actually see the layers as well, um, just as in like the, the turtle carapace itself as well. 
Oh, interesting. So because they're building these, um, they're kind of they're constructing their own little habitat with with the the deposits that are in the ocean. You're actually able to like break down the. I think a lot of it will be calcium deposits, won't it? And see what where that's where that's actually come from. Exactly. So for you know what we're going to talk later about um, the whole stable isotope thing. So you can do the whole stable isotope analysis as well on those critters. Oh no way! I hadn't um, even thought of that. There's a really cool study, um, yeah, that has come out uh, out of Australia. Um, Ryan Pearson is his name. I hope I didn't mispronounce his name. Um, who has pretty much, yeah, come up with this idea and done some incredible stuff on it for his PhD. And yeah, he has been able to pretty much track the turtle and the travel of the turtle by just you know looking at the barnacles that were on the turtles. That's incredible. I think uh, you know immediately what I'm thinking as you're explaining this to me is that how nature is connected and interacts you know, ac- across species is so in- incredibly complicated and so much more complicated than you know we have even come close to understanding. And when we're thinking about, as we see in, in, in newspapers and in the media all the time, you know, this species is suddenly uh, being classed as endangered or, you know, we've just lost this species or, you know, it's ex- uh, functionally extinct um, in the wild, is the knock-on effects of all the other organisms that re- might rely on, the, on those species for their own survival. It really blows your mind if you start looking at it at the sort of microscopic level. Oh, oh totally. I mean, I think... A lot of people always just think about the large organisms, you know, because they are usually more charismatic. But I mean, we we there is a reason why we talk about keystone species, right? So if you think about, I don't know, a block somewhere in a wall, and how much little critters, like how much little plants, could actually grow on that, you know, building block somewhere, and if would pull it out, the whole freaking wall would like you know collapse. So this is. Pretty much the same thing with like large animals as well, or like large species that we might lose um, to extinction. And so nobody has even studied a lot of those small critters. And um, so that means we don't even know what we might lose, you know, just because, I mean, what if, I don't know, that's totally not a marine biology thing, but we have a moth that lives only on sloth here in Costa Rica. So if the sloth ever became extinct, that whole moth population or this whole species of moth would also go extinct because they need the sloth feces to actually reproduce. So they live on the moth when the, you know, uh, sorry, they live on the sloth and when the moth needs to uh, reproduce, they wait till the sloth is uh, defecating and then they lay their eggs into that in the, to the feces of, of the sloth. So, you know, it's, it's just an example of how much, yeah, interconnection there is between small critters and, and big critters. Wow. So that, so they rely on the sloth for their entire life cycle, but there will be other animals yeah. that predate on the sloth and require them as part of their life cycle. Absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, more the predator-prey relationship. But, you know, predators a lot of times are not super specialized, depending on, you know, who we're talking about. Um but there is, you know, other specialists that are really like that have dietaries, yeah, that are very specialized in diet or in reproduction, for example, in the in the case of the sloth moth. Yeah, it's I've actually just been 
reading uh, quite a lot about biodiversity and biodiversity measures and the different metrics that we use and indicators that we use to try and encapsulate this really quite broad term, which is is biodiversity. And the underlying message under uh, the and the big sort of takeaway from all of that is that we, in a way, even as scientists, not that I'm including myself in that bracket, but there's a lot of hope that these biodiversity measures encapsulate all the things that we still don't understand and still haven't even cataloged as species. We just we just hope that these measures, to the best of our knowledge and to the uh, encompassing all the information that we have at this moment in time, will sort of take care of all the parts that we don't understand. Correct. I mean, we a lot of times talk about, you know, umbrella species um, amongst, you know, the conservation community, where we pick a species that is, you know, likely going to protect, but, or if we protect that particular species, we're not only protecting that species, but we're protecting its habitat. And also under the umbrella of that, so many other species that we don't even know that might be endangered or even depend on that species to survive or the habitat. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, um, I mean, this, this this ties nicely into the main sort of thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is based on a, a paper which uh, you published uh, called um, Beyond Traffic Morphology. It was published in uh, Biological Reviews, where you were looking at um, the, the trophic ecology between species and within species of marine turtles. Tell me a little bit about how that uh, research came about, and then we can start to dig into some of the really intriguing findings from it. Including, uh, including the actual like evolution of um, evolution of turtles. I didn't know until I was reading through your paper just what a, an ancient species they are and how long they've basically remained unchanged. Yeah, so the whole project actually became. Um, yeah, it was pretty much the introduction to my PhD. So I was going to do a stable isotope study on a population here in Costa Rica. Okay, I'm gonna. And, I, sorry you know, to inter was, interrupt you. I'm gonna because I want people to understand all of this as we're going through. Because I didn't know what this was either. Um, stable isotope study without like the super technical details. Just exactly what it is scientifically and and what that shows you. Yeah, so stable isotope analysis pretty much utilizes a stable version of an existing of an existing element. So let's take for example carbon. And there is different versions of it. So you might have heard of carbon-15, um, carbon for example, which is like the radioactive one that is kind of decaying over time and you can carbon date old samples because of that. But there are also forms that are stable that are actually not decaying. And for some reason in the natural environment, you know, depending uh, how much of the stable carbon you have, the carbon-13, um, which is like the stable form versus the normal form, which is carbon-12. And the ratio of the two kind of gives you an idea of what kind of photosynthetic pathway the plants are taking mainly. So I don't know, from your biology class, you might remember there were plants that have like a C3 and C4 pathway. My kind of, you know, um, the, the general gist is that I can say in the ocean, for example, how close to the coast is an organism feeding, for example, because Algae have a very different photosynthetic pathway than um, terrestrial plants. And if we're looking, for example, at nitrogen, I could take a snip from, for example, you, um, Byron, 
and say if you are a meat eater, so where in the food chain you are located, <laughs> or if you're a vegetarian or even a vegan or a pescatarian. You know, all of that is possible with stable isotopes. So we usually combine carbon and nitrogen to kind of have a what we call a trophic niche, which is based on the isotopic niche. So it gives you an, as an idea of kind of the location, like the baseline produces with the carbon, and then where in the food chain is the individual that we've been sampling um, kind of positioned, if that makes sense. Okay, so if you have a species that is um, predominant, predominantly eating some other organisms, um, some other fauna, but they predate on flora, are you able to work that out with this in the same way? Yes. So it, you can, yes, you can. It's the whole trophic level from start to end. Exactly, because I mean, it is not the most exact science. I mean, I don't want to lie about that. But um, if you especially have some, you know, reference samples from, for example, your baseline producers, which are usually algae and other plants or seagrasses, for example, you are able because you know what, what we call the trophic enrichment factor is. So that means from the plant that has a certain stable isotope ratio, you know, to the animal that feeds on it, it's usually um, kind of an increase in three parts per uh, per thousand, um, if that makes sense. So that means I know if I have an increase from, you know, my baseline producer that is like nine or 12, for example, that I know, okay, that animal that I sampled is not, you know, feeding directly on those plants, but is at least having probably two trophic steps in between. I got it. Yeah. Sense. So you're you're looking at the trophic hierarchy, and you can kind of work out at what point they're interacting in in that system and what they're feeding on. Correct. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I thought that that was important background before you carry on talking about about your papers. So I think hopefully everyone can can picture this, um, you know, this the actual process kind of of um, stable isotopes in what you were what you were trying to show in the study. Yeah, and I mean, the whole study idea really came about, you know, when I was starting on my project and I really wanted to know, yeah, well, but, you know, what is actually in the context of, you know, all sea turtle species and on different places in the world, like, where is my population actually positioned? And, you know, I just wanted to write a small introduction chapter <laughs> to that. And it turned out to be this, like, I year project where I got really into uh, every single study that has ever been published on sea turtles and stable isotopes and it was really really amazing because what we started to see is that you know evolutionary we believe that the seven like existing species that we still have the extant, uh, extant species actually kind of diverged on the trophic axis so that means the reason, I mean, a lot of them are sharing nesting grounds, for example, or even feeding grounds, you know, locally, like geographically. So how is it possible that they're able to coexist without competing with each other? And a lot of times we thought, well, it must be the diet, right? Because we know that some of the species are super specialized. If we talk about the hawksbill turtle, they're feeding on sponges. We're talking about the leatherback turtles. They're mainly feeding on gelatinous prey, jellyfish mainly. We're talking about green turtles, which are, are thought that they would, you know, feed mainly on 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 sea grasses. So the vegetarian turtle amongst them all. Uh, and this, we had some omnivores. And all of this ties with what a lot of people, if they're trying to rack their brains at 
like high school or maybe undergrad um, biology and what they learned about evolution, a lot of this ties with our ba- the you know very well established and basic understanding of evolution, which is uh, species um, evolving and filling these ecological niches. And Darwin's finches, which you actually mention in that paper, is the example that most people will think of when we're talking about that and the sort of development of beaks in the same way as the turtles develop different shaped beaks for different um, feeding habits. Exactly, yes. And so when we, you know, when we looked at it from this perspective, kind of assuming that this is what's happening, I set out and we kind of, yeah, reviewed all the studies that existed on different species. And what we actually found is that it's a lot more complicated. (laughs) (laughs) As nature normally is. (laughs) A lot more complicated. Yeah. So what we found is that, you know, there is actually so much overlap in the species don't even stick to the expected diets, right? So for example, the green turtles that we thought are definitely vegetarian, actually probably not vegetarian in some populations, definitely not in, you know, there is a lot more, yeah, interconnection probably again between, you know, where they're feeding. Um, So that means if I'm looking at a green turtle population here in Costa Rica, they might not do the same thing uh, when I look into one that's like feeding in some Asian waters. So this is really cool and really interesting. I mean, it raises, of course, also a lot more questions than it answers it. But it also shows that sea turtles have really, well, like they are, it's like the seven species that only exist. I mean, if you think about it, it's not that many species if you compare it to maybe marine mammals. You know, there's hundreds of, of species of different dolphins and, and whatever. Not. It's that they have really, you know, they occupy a large portion of, of the trophic niche within the ocean environment. So when you look at it, I actually, we haven't really worked that out so much in the paper because we already were very extensive in others' part. But if you look at the one of the main graphs where you can see how the different species have separated, you know, into different groups um, spatially. So that means, you know, where they're feeding in the ocean. So that means um, how close to the coast, for example, or where in the water column are they feeding. So they're not competing with each other. And also... In the in the in the in the food chain, so what position do they occupy to not compete with each other? Which is super interesting. So, you know, it kind of conveys again this idea: yes, they have you know diverged on the trophic axis, but actually, again, it's it's a lot more varied than just their you know their mandibles or what their mandibles look like, and. It showed that, you know, looking a little bit deeper and and not just taking morphology for granted is that, you know, the evolution might continue. So maybe there is already kind of like microevolutions happening within species where, you know, maybe the green turtle populations that are now feeding not only on, on, on seagrass anymore, maybe, I don't know, in a million years, it's going to be two different species that have specialized, you know, on two different kinds of diets. And maybe we will, well, you know, in the end, see that also in their, in their trophic morphology, but probably... You know, the diet is coming first and then maybe the specialization of, of any kind of mandibles and, and beaks. Yeah, it's really fascinating, particularly as, as you highlighted um, in the paper, as to what this really means for the, the conservation of species, because it means that we now need to consider 
these within species changes and adaptions to maybe more specialized feeding habits. The, the one example that when as I, as I was reading that, the one example that really sprung to mind, and I think is, is maybe a, a bit more visual and maybe well-known example is with killer whales and the actual uh, hunting habits that different populations of killer whales have had and adapted over time you know, some are feeding on fish, some are feeding on seals, and they've actually established the, these ecotypes. And they're not necessarily transferable. Just because it's a killer whale doesn't mean that a killer whale in one location of the world would necessarily be able to survive and hunt in another location of the world because of the prey abundance. And I think that that is also true in what came through in the, in the, paper, that, um, in the paper that you presented. Correct. Yeah. So ecotypes and also the different conditions, you know, because that maybe one ocean basin poses versus another one, because we talk a lot about, in the case of, for example, the Eastern Pacific leatherback that is almost extinct in the Eastern Pacific. Um, what could we do in order to prevent the extinction? Could we maybe transplant, for example, you know, Atlantic leatherbacks to the Eastern Pacific? But this is very, very, you know, concerning to think about if you know, okay, maybe they're not going to be adapted to the Eastern Pacific, even though if it's just like a micro adaptation, if you want. But it raises questions of feasibility of a lot of measurements that could be done maybe to prevent extinction. Because in the in the in the um, case of, of killer whales, for example, it's not just the diet, right? It's actually the culture as well. So they have different Absolutely. languages. Yeah. And yeah, it's fascinating. Probably, you know, put them together, they wouldn't even be able to communicate. I mean, sea turtles don't have such a complex social life but i mean we know that there is something happening in the eastern pacific that we are not entirely sure of why the eastern pacific population is faring so badly compared to the atlantic one because fishery you know we have it in both ocean basins they have more or less the same diet um but we can see already that the eastern pacific always had a lower reproductive output for example um, longer remigration intervals between, you know, the different nesting seasons. And they're also a little bit smaller. So it seems to be maybe food availability is different or maybe the metabol metabolism is different. That's, that's another, you know, possibility. We don't really know. That's the thing. And maybe there's other stuff that we haven't even thought about that might also play into the whole thing. Maybe they have, I don't know, specialized gut bacteria that, you know, wouldn't be able to digest the diet um, if we would transplant, for example, an Atlantic leatherback to the um, to the to the Eastern Pacific, I mean, not that this is really a thing, but there is so many little things that you know, so many variables that we don't know anything about, pretty much, and that we still have to count for if we are going to manipulate for the sake of of preventing extinction, for example. Do you think this highlights um, one of the problems with this continued focus that we seem to have whether that be from the sort of the general the general public and how we, we discuss uh, extinctions and conservation in the media but also in the scientific community of focusing on species when clearly here we're looking at the necessity to focus on components within species like, like beyond the, the the just like the pure genetic units of of uh, species definition well, I mean, I think this kind of circles back to what you just mentioned with biodiversity, right? I mean, it's 
biodiversity on different scales, right? So we talk about biodiversity within maybe an ecosystem, but we also talk about maybe not biodiversity, but diversity within a species. So, I mean, of course, if we think about like Homo sapiens, if we would have to save the species Homo sapiens, yeah, but who would be the, or like the one, you know, which, where would we start? Like, would we go to Asia <laughs> and take a couple there? Or would we go to Africa? Or would we go to North America? Yeah, yeah. What's I mean, the type you, you specimen know what for that? Yeah. But there's so much variation. And um, even, even we have like, you know, different adaptations to our environments or that there is certain like food intolerance is more prevalent in certain demographics than in others. So I think it's not that easy. It's not, you know, the sea turtle that we're going to protect or the leatherback turtle, but we need to make sure that whatever conservation measurements we're taking, that we are protecting the diversity within the species as well. I mean, it, it kind of kills two birds with one stone because we already know that, you know, the more genetic diversity, it also makes for a healthier population and a more resilient population for sure. Um, because, you know, in the, um, in the case of the cheetahs, I don't know, I'm sure you're familiar with that story. I mean, the whole population has pretty much sprung back from literally like one breeding couple. And um, I think what I've heard is that they're pretty, you know, um, yeah, genetic, not very diverse. And, and there's always the fear that if there might be this like virus or any other kind of disease that is, you know, adapted to this one specific genetic, they might kill the entire cheetah population again, because there is not that much diversity left anymore. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think that speaks to something which is so incredibly important when we're focusing our mind on conservation is that if we allow species through, you know, wh whatever the drivers are that cause this, to shrink down to these tiny populations, and there are a multitude of examples of, of species which are down to very small populations around the world, even if you are able to recover those species, you know, look at you know, white rhinos and black rhinos and um, tigers, even if you can recover those, in the long term, you might never be able to really fix the effects of having those tiny populations because exactly as you said, that genetic diversity is lost. It is gone. You can't really get it back, not over any kind of time scale that's useful to, to humans. Exactly. No, and I mean, there also is, you know, we always think about genetic, it's like something fixed, but there's so many things that Genetics, you know, kind of give you a little determination of what you will look like as a phenotype, but there's so much that actually your environment also determines, you know, um, in species that are learning certain things um, are learned. Um, maybe you acquire certain, you know, again, gut bacteria or language or else that unless you are particularly you know, looking for it and, and conserving that, you are missing that and you are losing that as well. And and that is, it's, it's such a challenge. And I think, of course, we like to simplify things so people understand better, but I think sometimes we really need to embrace the complicatedness of, of our natural world and also be very humble about manipulating it. I mean, there's so many... So many things that have gone wrong in conservation because people just thought, oh, it's like fixing a car. You know, I take this part out and I put this other part in and it kind of has the same function. And then hopefully everything is working afterwards. And it's just not. Is there, uh, and this might be a far too sweeping generalization, but if you were to just pick one or two 
of the main drivers that have been negatively affecting marine turtle populations around the world what do we what do we need to consider what what are the big takeaways oh the big drivers well um, unfortunately it really is human exploitation in different senses so fisheries is one of the big 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 issues as in as a bycatch um, because well, yeah, I mean, that is one thing. I mean, exploitation, not targeted by um, exploitation is, of course, another problem. That's the second part of the exploitation. But for fisheries, commercial fisheries, it's mainly bycatch. And we have so, so many turtles that, you know, and, and, and it's always about turtles that you have to think about. They have an incredibly long generation time, right? So from a little baby turtle up until it, it's reaching sexually maturity, the, the fastest the fastest species reach it maybe 15, 20 years. But we have species that are thought to not reach sexual maturity until 45 years. So you wow. have these adult turtles, right? Like the ones that have survived all the dangers out there. They are finally ready to, you know, contribute to the next generation. And then they die as bycatch. Not even because somebody wants to eat them. No, just kind of useless bycatch somewhere in our oceans. And just to give you a number, here in Costa Rica, the olive ridley turtle, within five years, and that's a very conservative estimate, we have lost about 600,000 turtles as bycatch in for, like fishes just on the Pacific side of Costa Rican waters in, in, in five years. It's, it's, it's horrible. And then the other problem, of course, is targeted um, exploitation. But, you know, it is definitely a smaller percentage, but it's just as, I don't know, disturbing for me if I go onto the beach. And, you know, sometimes I can handle better if people just go and steal some eggs and maybe not even the entire clutch of eggs, just like, you know, a turtle is laying maybe 150 eggs in some species and they take 10, to 10 or 20 eggs. Well, so be it. If they eat it, great. You know, if they needed to feed their family, but what makes me really upset is, again, when they kill the adult turtles, you know. So even in their in their logic, they need to understand that if they want to keep doing what they're doing, they need babies. You know, they need babies to be produced to grow into adults so they can go out and kill some more adults. But it's just not happening if they kill all the dolls that come and nest. Is it the case that um, species which do have much longer lifespans, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, th there are elephants, I mean, humans, we live quite a long time, turtles, the, they have um, a greater vulnerability to uh, anthropogenic effects? Well, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on your reproductive strategy as well. Um, because if you think about humans or elephants, you have parental care, whereas in sea turtles, for example, surprisingly, for that they're such a long-lived species, they actually, they're not having parental care, right? So it's it's a more qu uh, quantity over quality strategy that they have. So females go just kind of like huge masses of eggs into the sand um, and then they hope for the best. <laughs> and we know more or less that, you know, from what, let's say a thousand or 300 to a thousand babies, only one reaches sexual maturity. So, I mean, I think it's more about since you need to survive so many years that there is maybe this vulnerable, well, yeah, the vulnerability that you have been talking about. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. I Just mean, take... at least an elephant, you know, 
Yeah, an elephant mother can help their babies to survive, right? Or we humans, we're definitely able to help our kids to reach sexual maturity. Sea turtles are really out there fending for themselves um, once once they leave the egg. Yeah, and the implications of losing one mature, uh, sexually mature adult is well. You just gave us the numbers. Did you did you say three hundred thousand to get one? No. 100 to 1,000. I mean, uh, three, the statistic okay. is a little bit warped. We have always been talking about this one out of 1,000, and we've recently tried to backtrack where this actually originated because everyone uses that statistic. And we haven't really been able, as like the CTO biology community, come up with you know where that statistic originated. So It's funny because... There's a lot of instances like that in, in, in for different things, you know, uh, different ecological ecological communities, and you see these st- statistics continually come up. One that I can think of at home is that Scotland has seventy percent of the world's heather moorland, and it was pointed out to me quite recently that everyone uses that, everybody quotes it, and yet where did it actually come from? And it's something I need to dig into more because I actually am not quite sure if it how accurate that really is. And we take for granted these you know, very commonly thrown out. Um, just sort of accepted numbers sometimes, but I mean that is uh, well in in terms of making sure that you facilitate good science, you need to really understand where those numbers come from. Yeah, totally, and this is the reason I'm saying with with caution. But you will find that statistic everywhere. Governments use it, scientists use it without even you know looking for citations or citing another paper that's citing another paper that's citing another <laughs> paper, and you never. <laughs> yeah, I know, that is a problem. Uh, Christine, it's been, I, I don't want to keep you any longer because I know that you had to turn the fan off in your room so that we could podcast and it's sweltering hot there. It's been a, an incredible discussion on a topic that I'm actually, uh, have, re- have recently found a fascination for. Uh, I would love to come to your part of the world and witness this with my, with my own eyes and, and maybe dig into some of this research more and, and maybe bring some more content to people to uh, understand and learn more about this incredible collection of species, uh, which are which at the moment really, really do need our help. And uh, you're doing some incredible work down there. And I will put all the links to the paper that we've talked about, and also your website and some of the other work that you've been involved in, in the links so people can click through and go and uh, learn a little bit more. But I, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Thank you so much, Baron. And yeah, if you hear something dripping, that was probably my sweat. just kidding kidding. but no thank you so much for having me and you're definitely welcome to come and visit us during digital nesting season well thank you very much till october okay it's uh i don't need to be asked twice i will have to try and make that happen 